I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Napoleon Assist. Today's episode is in a topic that I've been interested in for, well, years now, and it's actually the topic that sparked the idea for my PhD. The bulk of what you're about to hear is based on a paper that I gave for the Wellington Congress in April 2019, and it covers one of the darker stories of Britain's involvement in the Napoleonic Wars. Many of you will know of Waterloo and Trafalgar, and some might know of the major victories of the Peninsular War, such as Salamanca and Vittoria. But I think it's safe to say that what happened in the aftermath of the sieges of Theodore Rodrigo, Badajoz and San Sebastian is not common public knowledge. It might be known amongst scholars, but isn't necessarily known amongst the wider community. This month marks the anniversary of the capture of Badajoz, the most infamous of those, and so it seemed appropriate to make it the focus of this episode. For those of you who are not familiar with the context, you can find information on the website at www.thenapoleonicwars.net in the Peninsular War section. Very briefly though, by 1812 the Peninsular War had entered its fourth year and had turned into a stalemate on the Spanish-Portuguese border, as the British held two crucial fortresses on the Portuguese side, whilst the French held the equally crucial fortress towns of Theodore Rodrigo and Badajoz on the Spanish side. If the Anglo-Portuguese army under Wellington's command was to be able to advance into the heart of Spain, those towns needed to be taken by siege. Theodore Rodrigo was captured in a lightning-fast campaign in January, yet Badajoz needed much longer uh, before it was captured. That's the context, now for the paper. The Curious Case of Badajoz, the aftermath of British sieges in the Peninsula War. Throwing off the restraints of discipline, frightful excesses were committed. The town was fired in three or four places, the soldiers menaced their officers and shot each other. This account of the aftermath of the capture of Theodore Rodrigo in January 1812 could just as easily have described the disorder that followed the capture of Badajoz in April of that year 
and of San Sebastian in September 1813. The conduct of British and Portuguese troops in the wake of those sieges has been described as Rob by Robert Harvey as a wild orgy of pillage almost without precedent in British military history, and by Charles Esdale as a war crime. There is a considerable volume of scholarship on the sacking which followed these sieges, however most of it has focused on explaining why they took place. Saul David has pointed out that soldiers' wives energetically joined in the plundering, whilst Charles Esdale has found that poorer inhabitants actually participated in the sacking of Theodore Rodrigo. The most common argument, though, is that these sackings were inevitable, partly due to the impossibility of officers staying in contact with their men in the narrow streets, and partly due to the tradition that besieged towns which stood in assault could be sacked. All of these arguments are valid, yet at the heart of this suggestion of inevitability lies a paradox. Wellington. Wellington's abhorrence of plundering is well documented. The briefest glance at his general orders demonstrates his ongoing battle to try and curb this tendency amongst his men. In September 1809 he wrote, The commander of the forces is concerned to hear that last night several soldiers plundered a bakery. This continued misbehaviour of the troops gives the commander of the forces the greatest concern, and he is determined, however difficult it may be, to put a stop to it. In March 1810, with the men still appearing not to have got the point, he wrote, The commander of the forces repeats his determination to spare no trouble to procure and produce evidence against those who may be guilty of such outrages, and to carry into execution invariably whatever may be the sentence of the court-martial. For Wellington, then, the looting, murder and rape which occurred in these towns must have created an intense internal conflict, as he sought to reconcile his unequivocal stance on plunder with an acceptance of the notion that these sackings were to be expected. Theodore Rodrigo, Badajoz and San Sebastian therefore represent curious cases of inconsistency from a commander who was usually uncompromising in his expectations. My focus today, therefore, is not on why were these towns plundered. If we accept that there were a variety of reasons why the sackings themselves took place, the important question arises, what, if anything, was done to punish those responsible and prevent them from happening again? This question is fundamental to our understanding of the nature of discipline within Wellington's army and the delicate balance that existed between command and control. At first glance, Wellington's general orders during the sacking of Badajoz are characteristically unequivocal. On the 7th of April, the day after the town was captured, he ordered, It is full time that the plunder of Badajoz should cease, and the commander of the forces requests that an officer and six steady non-commissioned officers may be sent from each regiment, British and Portuguese, of the 3rd, 4th, 5th and Light Divisions into the town tomorrow morning at 5 in order to bring away any men that may be straggling there. The commander of the forces has ordered the provost marshal into the town, and he has orders to execute any man he may find in the act of plunder, after he will arrive there. This order is to be communicated to the Portuguese as well as to the British troops. The next day, with the plunder still continuing though, he ordered, The rolls must be called in camp every hour, and all persons must attend until further orders. The idea of that was that the officers would therefore know who was absent. He went on, Brigadier General Powers is ordered and is held responsible that no British or Portuguese soldiers, excepting those belonging to the place or having a passport from a field officer, shall go into Badajoz until further orders. The ladders in the counter scarp and the scarp of the fort are to be taken out of the ditch tomorrow morning at daylight 
by fatigue parties of Brigadier General Powers' brigade, and the Brigadier General will report when this order is obeyed. So that was designed to stop troops from being able to get into the town to continue plundering. Wellington continued, The commander of the forces calls upon the staff officers of the army and the commanding and other officers of regiments to assist him in putting an end to the disgraceful scenes of drunkenness and plunder which are going on at Badahoff. The provost marshal of the army and the assistant provost of the several divisions are to attend there tomorrow at daylight and throughout the day. Yet the timing of those orders is highly significant. Badahoff fell at around 1am on the 7th of April. It was not until the afternoon of the 7th that Wellington started to address plundering with the first set of orders that I just uh, outlined to you. What is noticeable is that in those orders, Wellington was directing that the plunderers were not to be rounded up until 5am on the 8th of April. Only at 11pm on the 8th, nearly 48 hours after the sacking began, did Wellington issue comprehensive measures to stop troops getting into the town and determine who was absent without leave. That was the second set that I read to you. The order of the 8th of April on the Provost is particularly interesting, and I'm going to quote it again to you. The Provost Marshal of the Army and the Assistant Provost of the several divisions are to attend there tomorrow at daylight and throughout the day. If, as Wellington suggested on the 7th, the Provost had already been ordered into the town, it does beg the question why he should need to issue a further order to the same effect. Now, eyewitness testimony proves that the Provost were ordered into the town, and a gallows was erected, and some were flogged. But despite what a number of books suggest, there's actually no conclusive primary proof that any looters were hanged. Unfortunately, it hasn't been possible to locate any records for the Provost, uh, and therefore the extent of their role in quelling the disorder remains difficult to determine. What is apparent from these orders, however, is that the army's commanders were scrambling to deal with a situation that had escalated far beyond their control. The fact that Wellington declared powers would be held personally responsible demonstrates the extent of the breakdown in command and control within the army. Wellington and his subordinates had been caught completely off guard. Yet Badahoff, of course, was not the first time that British officers had lost control of their men in the wake of a siege. Theodore Rodrigo had been followed by plundering, though on a much smaller scale, and this raises the tantalising question of whether Theodore Rodrigo and the manner in which it was dealt with actually set a precedent for events that took place at Badahoff. As order was restored in Theodore Rodrigo in the morning after the assault, Wellington's general orders had little reason to raise the issue, and he chose instead to thank and praise the troops for their labours and gallantry. Nonetheless, plunder was a crime triable at general court-martial and punishable by death, and the evidence of the troops' crimes were plain to see. Captain Kincaid remarked that the light division marched out of the town in French soldiers' clothes, with hams, bread, and even bird cages on their bayonets. Meanwhile, William Swaby, who was posted 25 kilometres southwest of the town at the time, quote, heard complaints of our soldiers at Rodrigo. There was, therefore, plenty of grounds for the soldiers to be tried. Either the complaints of the civilians had to be looked into, or the officers themselves would have been expected to investigate how their men had acquired their newfound wealth, or indeed their feathered friends. The reality is that there were no such trials. While some deserters found in Theodore Rodrigo were tried by general court-martial and executed, no general court-martial dealt with plunder in the town. 
across the 13 regiments of the 3rd and Light Divisions, there's only one regimental court-martial held for suspicion of theft, and that took place in the 2nd Battalion, 5th Regiment, although for six of those regiments there are no returns of regimental courts-martial in the six monthly inspection reports. Even in that isolated case of the 2nd Battalion, 5th, the charge does not explicitly refer to Theodore Rodrigo, with the trial occurring some six days after the siege concluded. With such a lax disciplinary response to blatant plundering, the troops could consider themselves to have gotten away with it at Theodore Rodrigo, or even assume that their actions were condoned. Wellington's orders prior to the assault on Badajoz gave them no reason to alter that perception, as there was a remarkable ambiguity in his orders that the troops stay together until the threat of the enemy had been overcome. During the siege, some of the soldiers had carefully planned the crime spree that they would unleash once inside the town. William Lawrence recalled that he and his friends, quote, knew where the shops were located. Having heard a report that three hours plunder would be allowed, we arranged to meet at a silversmith's shop. As with Theodore Rodrigo, the response of the military courts was muted. There were no general courts martial whatsoever in the Iberian Peninsula in the week following Badajoz. The registers of the newly created general regimental courts martial equally show nothing relevant. Regimental court-martial returns are missing for 12 of the 24 regiments which stormed Badajoz. Of the remainder, nine returns show nothing that fits either the dates or relevant crimes. Of the remaining three, the 2nd Battalion 5th Regiment tried one soldier on suspicion of theft more than a fortnight after the plunder of Badajoz ceased. The 2nd Battalion 95th tried one corporal and three privates for unsoldierlike conduct on the evening of the 9th, yet the most revealing is actually a return of the 1st Battalion 4th Regiment for the period in question. By the standards of some court-martial returns, it's actually quite unremarkable. It only covers a one-month period between mid-April and mid-May, and details 25 individuals over that period who were tried. Now that's not particularly bad. The returns of the 13th Regiment, for example, often contained hundreds of trials over a six-month period. Up to the 5th of May, Four people in the first 40th were tried for dirtiness, four for drunkenness, three for unsoldierlike conduct, and four for robbing an inhabitant. As those last four were tried on the 5th of May, nearly a month after Badahoff, it's very difficult to comment on whether there is a link. However, what is really intriguing is a note at the bottom of that return. In a staggeringly apologetic tone, the battalion's new commanding officer explains that, quote, the above relative state of discipline of the regiment after the siege of Badahoff and the very great irregularities and drunkenness that prevailed caused the above number of court-martials, for example, and to put a stop to such practices. Here we have the commander of a British regiment justifying why he called court-martials to discipline his own men in line with army regulations. And yet even here, the trials are not for plunder, murder and rape. As at Theodore Rodrigo, few were brought to justice. Does this therefore mean, as has been suggested by some, that what happened at Badahoff was less serious than has been assumed? There has been a lot of confusion over the scale of what took place at Badahoff. The number of deaths has certainly been exaggerated, as Adrian Gilbert's claim of 4,000 civilian casualties is demonstrably just incorrect. Saul David has suggested that the figure was 250, and Roy Muir has suggested that the number may be fewer than 100. Yet research by Fernando Ortiz has uncovered a detailed tally of deaths and injuries. Ortiz's sources originate from the 
Diocesan Archives at Badajoz and revealed that a census by the French on the 17th of March found 300 families in the town, which, if we multiply it up, would be produce an estimate of around 1,400 people. A parish priest then provides the street, the house number, and even the names of the victims, totaling 102 dead, 23 mortally wounded, and 83 seriously wounded. At the very least, that gives us a casualty rate of 16%. However, there are a couple of factors to consider there. The first is the absence of the parish of Santo Domingo from these sources. And when you combine that with the fact that a number of civilians seemingly left the city after the French census, that means that the figure, the percentage figure is much likely to be much higher, somewhere in the region of 20 to 25%. Clearly then, whilst the numbers are not as high as been assumed, the proportion was still highly significant. So why then was it not picked up at the very least by the Spanish newspapers as events at San Sebastian were in 1813? I'm particularly grateful here to Alithia Laspra, who has shown me documents that indicate that the answer, ironically, lies in patriotism. The first Spanish papers to report on events in the aftermath of Badajoz were French-supporting publications. As a result, loyalist Spanish newspapers were faced with a choice. They could either echo their Francophile counterparts in denouncing, denouncing the nation's allies, or they could celebrate the liberation of another fortress. Their decision to favour the latter unquestionably reduced the pressure on Wellington to prosecute. However, the absence of prosecutions is more complex than this. Military justice was dependent on officers and NCOs reporting on those who broke military law. That was highly problematic. Ed Koss has demonstrated the importance of camaraderie and mutual support at platoon level to the survival of British troops on campaign. That made it unlikely for soldiers to report on their friends, as it increased risk of ostracisation from that primary group. Subalterns, meanwhile, were faced with the need to strike a delicate balance between maintaining order and maintaining morale. There are a number of accounts of strict disciplinarians who flogged their men regularly, actually fearing that their own men would exact their revenge in battle by shooting them in the back. In such a culture, prosecution of any crime was challenging, and provides evidence of a wider phenomenon of a pragmatic system of discretionary justice, where officers adopted a live-and-let-live live approach to apprehending their men. It is, of course, widely acknowledged that some gallant officers attempted to stop their men. What is less well known, however, is that some officers were actively complicit in plunder. It has long been debated whether the men were actually told that they could plunder, and there are a number of different sources that I'm going to cite here that reflect that across different sections of the army, there was certainly a consensus that they seemed to have believed, at least, that they could plunder. The volunteer George Hennell's letters, George Hennell went out to volunteer his services in the hope of uh, obtaining a commission when an enzyme was killed and he would then be promoted into that post. So his letters recalled um, that plundering was permitted, saying, Soon after daylight, the bugle sounded for two hours plunder. I've already mentioned Private William uh, Lawrence, who recollected, Having heard a report that if we succeeded in taking the place, three hours plunder would be allowed, we arranged to meet at a silversmith's shop. Pig, that's the nickname of one of Lawrence's friends, even provided himself with a piece of wax candle in case we needed to light our way. So clearly they had enough warning uh, in their minds to actually plan in quite a detailed way their crime spree and associate the uh, acquire the materials that they felt they needed. 
Rifle Officer John Kincaid also had little doubt about the matter. Ten o'clock in the morning, and our men were then permitted to fall out, to enjoy themselves for the remainder of the day, as a reward for having kept together so long as they were wanted. The whole of the three divisions were, by this time, loose in the town, and the usual frightful scenes of plunder commenced, which the officers thought it necessary to avoid for the moment, by retiring to the camp. In other words, as far as Kincaid was concerned, the men were left to their own devices, and Badahoff was left to its fate. Now this phenomenon of plunder for reward was not a unique occurrence. During the Waterloo campaign, General Adams specifically permitted his men to plunder three farmhouses as a reward for fighting hard all night, pointing to that culture of plunder as a reward at even the highest levels of the army, whilst George Simmons, a major in the rifles, told his men to go in search for food for the officers, clearly not wanting to do the dirty work himself, remarking, The inhabitants have left their houses generally. Do not be long about it. However, some went even further, taking the opportunity not just to line their stomachs, but also line their pockets with plunder. In Buckham's personal narrative of adventures in the peninsula, he recalls whilst in Oporto in, on the 10th of May 1812, A few days ago, several officers arrived here to dispose of some odd articles of plunder. I have found a very pleasant acquaintance with Captain Blank of the Blank Regiment, one of the most distinguished in General Picton's division, and also Lieutenant Blank of Blank Regiment. The captain has two or three massy silver chalices as his hard-earned share of the spoil. Now Buckham left out the names of those individuals in order to save their blushes. Buckham's comments should not be dismissed as mere anecdotal evidence, because an examination of the grants of leave issued in the general orders indicates that the closest to a portal that anyone was granted leave to after Badahoff was actually Combra, as the vast majority were sent to Elvash or Lisbon. Only two officers fit the descriptions outlined by Buckham. They are Lieutenant Gould of the 77th and Captain Martin of the 45th, both of whom were granted one month's leave to Combra on the 11th of April. What is so striking here is the openness of both Martin's actions and Buckham's sense that this was acceptable. Similarly, Le Mesurier wrote home resenting his commanding officer's decision to chastise the officers for plundering at Badahoff, which he claimed only one or two in the regiment did. Interestingly, Le Mesurier himself later confessed in a letter home to taking some plays during a storming, but it's not clear whether that was at Badahoff or San Sebastian. Prosecution of plundering at Badahoff was never going to occur in such an environment. This is not to suggest that every officer in the British Army was an unrepentant looter, but it nonetheless demonstrates the need for us to reappraise the way in which we view the delicate balance between command, control, and indeed honour within the British Army. However, preparations for San Sebastian indicate that Wellington was not prepared to allow a repeat of Badahoff. In light of the uproar over the allegedly deliberate burning of the town, which itself is a false claim, Wellington sent a series of reports to Henry, Henry Wellesley, his brother, uh, who was British ambassador to Spain in October 1813. These included remarks from the officers commanding the regiments of the 5th Division, which stormed the town, and reports from the Assistant Provost Marshal Sergeant Edward Williams and Andrew Hay, the commander of the division. All of them agreed that the utmost was done to prevent plundering. Patrols were dispatched through the streets, and the men were allegedly kept so busy that, quote, it was next to impossible that they could find time to commit depredations. 
Hay claims to have sat as president of a court-martial continuously, which clearly therefore contradicts the idea that plundering was limited, and Williams claims to have flogged 60 men in the first two days after the town fell, whilst one of his colleagues was posted variously at the breach in the town's walls and the main gate to prevent men from entering the town or leaving with their plunder. However, as with Badahoff and Theodore Rodrigo, there were no general or general regimental courts martial for events at San Sebastian. As for Hayes Court, the instantaneous infliction of punishment by the Provost would suggest that these were drumhead court martials, and as no records are kept for those, it's impossible to determine accurately the numbers of crimes tried. Nonetheless, it is clear that a much greater effort was made to restrict the depravity at San Sebastian. Whilst that does not mean that the men did not loot the city, it is striking that the reports allude to measures which Wellington had, in desperation, implemented to quell looting at Badahoff, not least the erection of a gallows, the securing of the breaches, and ordering the provost into the town. The army's commanders may not have exercised total control over their men, or even as much as they would have liked, but there can be no doubt that the plans for quelling disorder in the aftermath of the assault were far more comprehensive than they had been in 1812. In conclusion, it seems that a failure to act after Theodore Rodrigo set a precedent which, to an extent, exacerbated the scale of disorder at Badahoff by creating a perception that plunder was permissible. After Badahoff, some lessons were learnt and measures were implemented to try and prevent its repeat at San Sebastian. However, these sieges provide an interesting case study through which to reassess the nature of the British Army's justice system and how the balance between command and control manifested itself in practice. Through a pragmatic system of discretionary justice, officers as senior as Wellington himself were obliged to make difficult decisions between safeguarding the morale of the army and protecting their allies' civilians. As the curious case of Badahoff indicates, ultimately the army's morale was considered more important. The aftermath of the sieges of Theodore Rodrigo, Badahoff and San Sebastian throw up a lot of questions which we might want to explore further in online discussion. Quite often when I speak about this, people comment that there's a rapist in every man, to use their phrase, and that the assaults of these towns were so bloody and vicious that it drove the troops to do things that they would never normally have done. Now, I respectfully take a bit of an issue with that. Assuming that this is just what men do in war can all too easily lead us to be apologists for what happened. These events, I would argue, need to be examined objectively, and excuses should not be found. The actions of these men were awful. Yes, they had experienced appalling conditions during the siege, and the storming of the breaches was a horrific bloodbath. But if we pass it off as simply what happens during a siege, we don't ask the important questions that arise from it, which some of which I've tried to tackle here. Equally, people say, yes, but we have to judge these events by the standards of the time. But I'm not sure I entirely agree with that either. Yes, we have to be extremely careful not to allow our historical interpretations and judgments to be influenced by our 21st century principles. But there's a bit of a flaw in the it was normal at the time argument. This was a period when slavery and the slave trade was still rife. Racism and the trade in human beings was considered totally acceptable, and yet, quite rightly, nobody would suggest that we shouldn't be appalled by the forcible migration and sale of millions of people, and ask probing questions about it. If we take that stance with one atrocity, should we not be consistent and take it with others, albeit smaller ones, much smaller, giving them the respect and attention that these events deserve? 
Others will say, yes, but there was a convention uh, that towns which stood in assault after the defences had been breached were put to the sword. Now, although I could comment on that, I don't want to say too much because Gavin Lewis is in the midst of writing an excellent piece of work on precisely that topic. Um, but there are a couple of issues with the argument itself. One is that it's the garrison, but not the population, that allegedly should have been put to the sword. And the second is this. All of these towns were occupied by the French, but belonged to Spain, who of course was Britain's ally in the effort to liberate Spain from French control. So these sieges point us in the direction of other work, which has looked at the dynamic between British soldiers and Spanish and Portuguese civilians. Gavin Daly's excellent book, The British Soldier in the Peninsular War, Encounters with Spain and Portugal, is a vital piece of reading for anyone who wants to look at that further. Were British soldiers willing to draw distinctions between friend and foe? Did they reserve a particular dislike for the Spanish and Portuguese? When it comes to the punishment of these sackings, was it actually possible to do anything to punish these soldiers? How should these men have been punished? And what potentially would have happened to the army, its morale and its cohesion, if they had been reprimanded? Can we actually even know that? So there's a lot to talk about then, so please do get involved in the discussion in the forum. The web address is www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. If you have any questions, drop me a line either on the forum or via Twitter at ZWhiteHistory using the hashtag NapoleonAssist, and I'll reply, and if lots of people are asking similar things, I'll record a longer response in a special podcast in a few weeks. Before I go, I want to say thanks to a number of people who've helped with this research. Chris Walgar and Julie Gammon, who spent many hours offering me advice on this topic, uh, which is one that I'm focusing on a lot as I write my thesis. Remy Amble, who on a number of occasions has forced me to think much more deeply and ask more challenging questions about these events. Richard Tennant and Alithia Laspera, who gave me access to material that I wasn't previously aware of. And Rory Muir and Charles Esdell, whose questions at the Wellington Congress have helped me to continue to mould my thinking. So that's it for this episode. I'll be back in a fortnight with more exciting topics. May will feature a more narrative piece on the French Revolution for those who don't know as much as they might like to on the political and social origins of the period, though I'll be offering some thoughts on the wider questions connected to that as well. So please do have a listen when that goes live. I'll also be talking about an exciting project I'm working on to see the remains of six soldiers killed during the siege of Burgos analysed, identified and buried. So lots to look forward to. Until then... I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. Stay well. Keep being kind to one another. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>